If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. We are looking at this verse again. We looked at it last week, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. We started uh, just a, a little two-week series on pride and humility as we begin our study this semester on pride and humility in this book that we're going through. So as we started last week looking at what the Bible says about pride, we ultimately saw that the Bible speaks very clearly that pride is the greatest danger that we face. It's not externally around us that we have dangers. It's internal. It's an internal force in our souls. Pride is our soul's greatest enemy. You remember John Stott said it this way, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. Pride is our greatest enemy because it isolates us from the grace of God and it isolates us from the God of grace. It's the greatest danger to our souls individually. It's the greatest danger to our church corporately. And so we are asking God to speak to us on the issue of pride and humility this morning. We, looked, we defined it last week at what pride is biblically. God is opposed to the proud. So we had to ask the question, what is pride biblically? And that word literally means to shine above others or to show oneself above others. So pride in relation to other people is to be the standard of measurement by which you measure everybody else. And they fall short if they don't meet my expectations of who I am and the standards that I have for myself. But it also means something in relation to God. Pride demonstrates itself in relation toward God in self-sufficiency and independence. Pride is when a sinful creature aspires to the status and the position of God, refusing to acknowledge their own dependence on Him. Pride makes us self-deceived. Pride makes us compare ourselves to others. Pride makes us predators rather than people. The question is not if pride exists in your heart, it is where pride exists in your heart and how it is expressed. So we asked what the Bible says about what pride is, and then we asked what the Bible says about how God deals with prideful people. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Peter is very clear. He quotes from an Old Testament passage, and he tells us that God is opposed to the proud. That word opposed is a military word. He takes up arms to fight in a battle, in a war against prideful people. Thomas Watson said it this way, The proud man is the mark which God shoots at, and he never misses his mark. God has taken up weapons against and is continually launching his artillery against prideful people. There really seems to be no sin that God hates more than pride. So we ended last week by just saying we need to kill pride. But how? How do we do that? I think Peter will help us with three ways that we are to pursue practically humility and kill the pride that is living within our souls. 1 Peter chapter 5, let's read together verses 1 through 11 and then ask God's blessing on our time. Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. God, we come before you and we are once again blown away by our own pride. We know that we are more prideful than we realize. And God, I pray that you would break our hearts today. Give us a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God, I pray that as we see your attitude towards pride, we would feel the same way that you feel. That we would hate it. And that we would hate it first and foremost in our own souls and not in those around us. God, I pray that you would make us a church that would be humble. May we strive for being at peace with all men and that is only possible through humility. So may we be humble people. God, as your word is communicated this morning and you speak clearly to our hearts, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see clearly what you would have us do based on what your word says. And God, as we study this concept of humility, the biblical understanding of what pride and what humility look like, as we devote an entire semester to this issue in our home groups, God, I pray that our church would change. Our church would look more like Jesus, would act more like Jesus, would speak more like Him, would feel more like Him, would have attitudes that would look more like His attitudes. And God, that You would be glorified as grace permeates Christ Bible Church. That's only possible by You graciously giving it to us. So we ask for grace even this morning to see clearly what Your Word would say and to apply it to our lives this day. We pray it in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. So, we ended last week talking about what the Bible says about pride, and now we have to move to, okay, how do we live this out in humility? How do we work for and work towards practically pursuing humility? I think Peter's going to help us, but before we get to the practical pursuit of it, I want to just cover the promises that humility has inherent to it. So we're going to look at two things this morning. Number one, we're going to look at the promises of humility, and number two, practically pursuing humility. So the promises. I want you to see from Scripture what we are given, what we are promised if we live out humility. The first promise is that of grace. Verse 5, in the quotation from Proverbs, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So why should we pursue humility? Because we are given grace if we are humble. He gives grace, undeserved, unmerited favor. Now, some people would ask the question, we dialogued about this in Family Bible Hour this morning, wait, if I am pursuing humility and then I give my humility to God to say, now because I'm humble, I have earned grace, how is it truly grace? 
What Peter is telling us, he's defining for us what humility is. Humility is going before God saying, I would love a relationship with you, but I have nothing that can accomplish that. I would love to be made right with you, but I have nothing that can make me right with you. So if I'm going to have a relationship with you, it has to be by you doing all the work. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. I I can't do anything. I have nothing to offer you. Even my own righteousness is filthy rags before you. So the humble soul will say, I have nothing to offer God. And frankly, I have nothing to offer other people. Anything good that I have in myself is because God graciously gave it to, to me. So grace is given to those who say, I have nothing. I have nothing. A.W. Pink says it this way, grace is the favor of God to those who not only have no positive deservings of their own, but also who are thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. John Piper says, humility is the self-forgetful gift that receives all things as a gift. Humility itself is beyond our reach. If it were a product of reaching, we would instinctively be proud of reaching it. But it is a gift of God alone. God gives grace to the proud. As we come before Him lowly, that, that word humble, or God gives grace to the humble, that word humble, lowly in mind, the, the definition from that Greek word is having a humble opinion of yourself, a deep sense of your own moral smallness. I have nothing good of currency or value in my morality to give to God. I have nothing here. Or in the words that we've used several times this summer, to be wonderfully unimpressed by yourself. Humility is just being wonderfully unimpressed by yourself. Somebody says, you did a great job doing that. You would go, what? Doing what? I don't even understand. I don't know because I I don't have a high view of myself. Humility is the opposite of esteeming yourself. It's the opposite of pride. Pride. Humility always accompanies saving faith. You cannot be saved unless you first see your need, your bankruptcy in your own soul, and cry out to God for salvation. That's what Matthew 5 tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in order to receive this grace, we need to see our own condition and rightfully assess, I have nothing to offer God. Augustine said, for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, and humility is the third thing. If you want to follow God, you have to be humble. Martin Luther said, it is God's nature to make something out of nothing. That's why he cannot make anything out of him who is not yet nothing. We have to come before God utterly humiliated and say, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. Would you, would you give me something? Because it Anything that I have will only be a gift from you, not based on what I deserve. So, the first promise that Peter tells us about humility is, if we understand our situation rightly and run to God for help, He will give us help. If we say to Him, I have nothing, I have absolutely nothing to earn your favor, He will give grace. The second promise that we see is He will exalt us. So, He'll give us grace, and He will exalt us. Peter writes in in verse 7, Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. And how does he do this? How does he care for you in the midst of those moments that you feel like you are going to be crushed by what's going on around you? If you humble yourself, verse 6, under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you at the proper time. He loves you, he cares for you, and he will exalt you at the proper time. 
This is a principle that's stated all over the New Testament. Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. Luke chapter 14, verse 11. Luke chapter 18, verse 14. Jesus says in all three of those verses, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. God has a plan A for your life. God's plan A for your life is that you would humble yourself. Humble yourself, and he'll exalt you. But most people don't do that. And so God has a plan B, and his plan B is, I will humiliate you. If you humble yourself, I'll exalt you. If you don't humble yourself, if you exalt yourself, then plan B is, I will utterly destroy you. I will humble you for you. But oh, if we humble ourselves, he will come in and he will exalt us. If we humble ourselves, he will rush into our aid, into that moment and wrap us up and support us and exalt us. This is what Mary said in the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. She cried out in praise, God has brought down rulers from their thrones and he's exalted those who were humble. God exalts you. God upholds you. God lifts you up. He's got your back, so to speak. He exalts you. The third promise found in humility is God's full support. Turn to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. In Isaiah... Um, Isaiah tells us something incredible here about God's view of those who would humble themselves. There's no imperative in Isaiah 66 to pursue humility. There is just a characteristic of what happens to humble people. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, I am God. So where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I might rest. I don't need rest. You can't build me a house that could contain me because my hands have made all these things. Thus, all these things came into being because of God making them. Then he says this, but I made you. You're my creatures. I shouldn't even care, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. You receive grace if you come before the Lord in humility. You receive exaltation. And third, you receive God's full support. God is opposed to the proud and he takes up arms against the proud, but he takes up arms to defend the humble. He's fully for you. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, when King Asa is struggling in his own pride, a prophet says to him, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for whom he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. He wants to support us. He wants to come alongside and exalt us and support us and fight our battles for us. And who are the ones to whom he does that? Those who are humble. Humility in Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2, captures God's attention. What what captures God's attention? What makes him say, stop, hang on, this is amazing? It's humility. God hates pride, and God is captivated by humility. And again, in Isaiah 66, humility is not commanded, but it's divinely attractive. And Isaiah is trying to help us to see, humble yourself, and God is for you. He's on your side. He's passionately opposed to the proud, 
but he's divinely attracted to the humble. The exact same mighty hand that crushes the proud is the exact same hand that upholds, supports, and exalts those who are humble. So, before we look at how we pursue humility, I just want to remind you it's a very good thing to pursue humility because of the promises. You will receive grace. You'll receive exaltation. God has your back. He has your, he's supporting you fully. He will raise you up and encourage you and defend you. But merely being educated about the dangers of pride and about the promises of humility does not mean that we will be humble people. In fact, up until this point, there might not be anything new that I have communicated to your heart. There might not be anything from this sermon or last week that you have learned as far as new things. You might be aware of all of these truths, but there must be specific application of the truth that we know into our lives. This is what we studied with the parable of the two builders. One builder receives God's word and does nothing about it. The other receives God's word and builds a house, builds on the words of Christ. Even Jesus' own words to his followers in Matthew 28, we, we refer to it as the Great Commission. Make disciples by going and baptizing. And what does he say about teaching? Notice he does not say, teaching them all that I have commanded you. He doesn't say that. Jesus says, if you're going to make disciples, you need to teach them how to observe all that I've commanded you. So you need to teach them everything I've commanded you, and then you need to teach them how to practically apply everything I've commanded you. The reality is, it is very possible to admire humility while remaining proud. It's very possible to admire, yes, that's good, that's right, that's biblical, and still be proud. Mere attendance on a Sunday morning doesn't ensure that life change is going to happen outside of these walls or that application is going to happen. In fact, the attendance at church learning about pride could potentially add to the pride that you came in here with. So we need to work on, okay, how do we actively fight against pride and actively pursue humility? Biblical knowledge comes to you in that parable of the the two builders. It comes to you as a, a brick, as it were. Biblical knowledge is handed to you as a brick with which you can build your house. But on that brick, we have on one side the words, handle with care. Be careful. You will be judged for what you know. And on the other side, apply immediately. Apply immediately. Don't don't take this brick home, put it in your car, think about building. Apply this, handle it with care, and apply this immediately. Apply it to your life now. So, The question is, how can we intentionally, deliberately mortify pride, which is the greatest enemy of our soul, and cultivate humility, which is our greatest friend? How can we develop the contrite spirit in Isaiah 66 and tremble at the word of God? We'll turn back to 1 Peter chapter 5 because Peter is going to give us three very clear imperatives as to how we are to pursue humility. We've seen the promises of humility. We will receive grace, exaltation, and God's full support. Now let's look at how to practically pursue humility. The first practical pursuit is found in verse 5. You younger men, this is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders. Remember, this whole flow, Paul, or Peter says in verse 5, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
do this because God's opposed to the proud. So he gives us two imperatives, be subject and clothe yourself with humility. And then he says, because, and that's the hinge that we looked at last week. Then verse six, he says, therefore do this because of the reality of that hinge that we looked at last week. So you already see those three imperatives that are clearly given to us. And Peter's going to say, because God's opposed to the proud and because he gives grace to the humble, do these things. The first is this. If we want to practically pursue humility, number one, we need to submit to human authority. We need to submit to human authority. Peter's going to single out a group of young people. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Why does he single out one group of people? One pastor has said it this way. Younger people are by their very readiness for service and commitment impatient with the leaders who either due to pastoral wisdom or the conservatism that comes with age, they're not ready to move as quickly or as radically as the young people are. So he points out young people submit joyfully, gladly submit to your leaders. Be subject to them, Peter says. That word be subject, that's a military term. You are placing yourself under somebody else's full command and their full authority. I give you my will, you tell me what to do, I will do it. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 says that everybody in the church should do this. Obey your leaders, submit to them. The practical, specific application of Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 5 are young men should be submitting to the authority of the elders. All of us should submit to the authority of the church's leadership. But the implication goes far beyond just pastoral leadership. The implication goes to the the leadership of others. If you want to start pursuing humility, start by submitting to those who are in authority over you, your parents, your pastors, your leaders, your teachers, your government, joyfully submitting with honor and respect to those who are in charge. Submit your will to them. Obviously, there's caveats, right? Obviously, if they ask you to sin, you don't do what they tell you to do. And the authority of the church specifically, this command is never an allowance for elders to lord their authority. Peter just said that. Don't lord your authority over people. But don't let the caveats do away with the main point. The main point's very clear. If we are to pursue humility, we need to pursue joyfully and gladly submitting to those that God has placed in leadership over us. Now, what does that look like? What does it look like to practically submit? The Westminster Larger Catechism, in dealing with the fifth commandment of honoring your father and your mother, generalizes it for all authority in your life. It says it this way, and I love the way it's worded. Show those over you respect in attitudes, words, and actions pray for them, thank God for them, imitate their virtues, cheerfully obey their lawful commands, willingly accept their correction, be loyal to them, have a forgiving spirit towards their sins and weaknesses, bring them honor by how you carry out your responsibilities. The reality is, if we were to ask Peter this morning, okay, Peter, how are we to practically pursue living out humility. I think the first thing he would tell us is, if you want to become a humble person, you must first submit yourself to the authorities that God has placed in your life. The second thing that he would say is found in verse 5 as well. So, younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and then he broadens it out. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. 
So the first, we see clearly, submit to human authority. The second, become a slave of everyone. If we are to practically pursue humility, we need to become a slave of everyone. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. That word, clothe yourselves, it's only used here in the entire New Testament. It's a very, very rare Greek word, even outside of the New Testament. It refers to tying on the apron of a slave, um, to do slave labor, something that would get you dirty, you tie on this apron, much like the one that Jesus would have tied on in the upper room in John chapter 13 when he washed his disciples' feet. Maybe that's what Peter's remembering here. Maybe he's remembering, okay, the way that Jesus served me and washed my feet. You remember that interaction? We studied that a couple months ago in the upper room discourse. Maybe he's remembering that. And he's remembering my master, the Son of God. He served me the lowliest of all possible things that he could have done, washing my feet. And then he said, I've given you an example that you should do with others. Maybe that's what Peter's referring to here clothe yourselves. But he tells us specifically, the apron that we are tying on here is not the apron of a slave, it's the apron of humility. Clothe yourself, tie humility on around you. In order to do that, you have to first take pride off and then tie humility on. He says, do this toward one another. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Can you imagine what this would do in our church? Can you imagine what would happen if our church practically applied this command every second of every moment that we're here together as a church? Can you imagine what humility would do to unity? To being offended? To being defensive? Thomas Schreiner gives us a a glimpse into what this would look like. He says this, smooth relationships in the church. I love that. Not rough ones. We all know rough ones. Smooth relationships in the church can be preserved. There is hope if the entire congregation adorns itself with humility. So we can all have smooth relationships if we all adorn ourselves with humility. This is why the author of Hebrews says, look, as far as it's possible with you, be at peace with all men. You do your job. Put on humility. And Lord willing, everybody else will. He goes on to say this, when believers recognize that they are creatures and sinners, they are less apt to be offended by others. Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly, but pride gets upset when another does not follow our own suggestions. Of course pride does that, because pride's a standard of measurement. We have a standard, and it's us, and they're not doing what we suggested that they should do. Humility is essential for all spiritual service and all ministry and all unity in the church. And if we are going to preserve unity in our church, we need to pursue humility. What does that look like practically? Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 tells us what this looks like. You know Philippians chapter 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So instead of selfishness, which is pursuit of personal goals or personal agendas, instead of empty conceit, which is seeking personal glory, both of which have the foundation of pride, 
Instead, Paul tells us, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That word regard is a word of accounting. You have thought this through very, very carefully, articulately. This is carefully examining the evidence and coming to a verdict that everyone else is more important than you are. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. You have to do that work to honestly assess, okay, I am the worst sinner I know, and everybody else around me is more important than I am. Can you imagine what that would do in a church? Can you imagine what that would look like in a home group? Is if everybody jumped in together with that attitude, you're more important than I am. Whatever you want, I want to serve you. I want to love you. If they say something that doesn't really jive with my own heart, it's okay because they're more important than me and they're probably right. It means that everyone else is seen as more deserving of honor and respect than we deserve. Therefore, more important than us. Can I ask you, husbands, is that your mindset of your spouse, that they're more important? What do they need? What do they want? What can I help with? Can I serve them? They're more important than whatever they want. Maybe this is totally appropriate because this is the first Sunday of of football happening. If your wife says, honey, I need something, they're more important than you. So turn off the game and go serve them. Do what they're asking you to do. Wives, is this the mindset of you and your relationship with your spouse? Do you both consider your kids as more important and worthy of honor than you? How about your boss? How about the leaders in the church? How do we get here? How do we do this? How do we practically consider more uh, others as more important than ourselves? Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, I am told by the Bible to esteem others better than myself. How do I do that? <laughs> Thank you, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Very smart man who goes, how do I do that? He says this, there is only one thing that can make me do that. There's only one thing that I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the Son of God and especially to contemplate the cross. When I see that I am a sinner and that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I am humbled to the dust, and I say that no one could be a worse sinner than I am. I am the chief of sinners, and anyone must be better than I am. Nothing but the cross of Christ can give us that spirit of humility. That's why C.J. Mahaney, in his book on humility, will study this together this semester. But he gives us five practical ways to pursue clothing yourself with humility. He says, each day survey the cross. How can you be arrogant when you stand beside the cross? That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying. He says, study the attributes of God. We say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God says, I am. So study the attributes of who he is, because when we study how big and grand he is, we will feel a lot smaller. And I don't think any of us feels as small as we truly are. He says, study the doctrines of grace To be theologically informed about the doctrines of grace and to be personally proud is a profound contradiction. How can you do that? How can you understand and study the doctrines of grace and then think, I did something to earn God's favor? He says, study the doctrine of sin. Study the doctrines of sin. We've all seen those mirrors, the rearview mirrors that say objects in the mirror may be larger than they appear. C.J. Mahaney says, sin never has that label on it. 
We never look at our own sin and think, oh, it's probably larger than it really is. We always see our own sin as smaller than it actually is. We always think of ourselves as way better than we truly are until we study the doctrine of sin and we really see, I've got nothing. I'm wicked to the core. How do you present yourself to others? Do you present yourself in all of your failures or do you present a better picture of yourself than you truly are? The last thing that C.J. Mahaney says out of these five, survey the cross, study the attributes of God, study the doctrines of grace, study the doctrine of sin. He says, invite and pursue correction. If you want to practically pursue humility, invite and pursue correction. When you read the Proverbs, there's a relationship between wisdom and correction, right? Um, We're reading through the Proverbs with our kids every morning, and you see that fools despise correction. So here's a practical question for you. Would your wife or your husband, would your children, would the leaders in this church, would the people that know you best say that you are easy to correct? Or would they say that they usually encounter stubbornness, a sense of pushback, maybe a sense of defensiveness in you? I I would go so far as to say, husbands, if you really want to try this one out, Go home and ask your wives this question. If you knew that I would not react in sinful anger to what you're about to tell me, where would you tell me that I need to grow? If you had, if you had carte blanche to say whatever you could possibly say about where I am in my relationship with the Lord, or specify, where do I need to grow in my leadership? Where do I need to grow in my service in the church? Where do I need to grow? And if you knew I wouldn't react in sinful anger or I would not become defensive, how would you answer the following questions? Where do I need to grow? How can I be a better husband? How can I be a better spouse? If you are truly serious about mortifying pride and sin in your life, then what would stop you from asking those questions? If you're truly serious about mortifying pride and sin in your life, What would stop you from honestly asking those questions intentionally, expectantly, wanting feedback? Peter tells us, become a slave of everyone. Clothe yourself with humility and serve everyone. Back in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter gives us one last practical pursuit if we're going to put on humility, and it's found in verse 6. Therefore, since God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting your cares on him because he cares for you. So we've already seen two of the imperatives. Submit to human authority if you're going to pursue humility. Become a slave of everyone. And finally, number three, embrace God's providence in your circumstances. Embrace God's providence in your circumstances. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Because he gives grace to the humble, humble yourself. Make yourself low, bow before God in his sovereignty as your king. Certainly this means that we submit to those around us and we submit every aspect of our will to God. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, it means much more than that. And you can see it here. 
It means to accept His sovereign control in your life in the midst of trials. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. That's why in context, 1 Peter 5 very clearly is saying, embrace the sovereignty of God in your life. Embrace His sovereignty. His mighty hand will uphold you. Humble yourself under His mighty hand. In the Old Testament, this is a a term that would describe the deliverance of God. He's going to hold you. He'll deliver you at some point. It might not be now, but He is powerful enough to deliver you. Stephen Charnock, in his book, The Existence and Attributes of God, says it this way, God can arm the weakest creature for our destruction and disarm the strongest creatures which appear for our destruction. He can command a hare, a crumb, a kernel to go awry and strangle us. He can make the heavens as brass over our head. He can stop the bottles of the clouds and make the fruit of the fields droop when there's a small distance to the harvest. He can arm men's wit, wealth, and hands against them. He can turn our sweet morsels into bitter and our own conscience into devouring lions. He can root up cities by moles and conquer the proudest by lice and worms. The omnipotence of God, the all-powerful nature of God, is not only the object of the believer's trust, but also the believer's fear. Oh, how we should adore that power which can preserve us when devils and men conspire to destroy us, and how we should stand in awe of the power which can destroy us, though men and angels should combine to preserve us. The reality is when we struggle with pride, it's because we are not seeing God for as powerful, as large, as grand and glorious as He truly is. So we say, God, I think you need to answer for this one. Why did you do what you did? I don't like what you're doing. The trial that I'm going through, the suffering that I'm experiencing, I don't like it and I think it's wrong. Wayne Mack says, proud people demand answers, just as Job did. Proud people refuse to trust in God's sovereignty unless they can make sense of it themselves. Proud people don't want to admit that there are many things that only God can answer. But Peter says, if you would humble yourself under his mighty hand, knowing in the midst of your greatest suffering and trials, God has you. He has a plan for you. He's working for your good. He's working for his glory. And you would trust him. Then Peter tells us at the proper time, he'll exalt you. Oh, how we do not like that phrase, at the proper time. Um, God is never late, right? He will always show up when he says he's going to show up. But I think biblically we can say God's hardly ever early. We, we're always asking God, please show up now. Please show up now. Please help me now. Please deliver me now. And Peter says, entrust yourself to him. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. And he'll exalt you at the proper time, in his perfect timing. Maybe he's making you wait to prove his trustworthiness to you. So if humbling ourselves under God, before God, is so important, then how do we know that we're doing it? Peter, how do we know that we're humbling ourselves under your mighty hand? Peter would tell us, verse 7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. How do we know that we are humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering? We know it by that word casting. 
That's a participle that modifies that main verb of humble. You must humble yourself. Okay, how do you do that? By casting all your anxiety on him. This is one of the greatest litmus tests of our humility before God. That's why Spurgeon says, do you find yourself to be an anxious man? Then I tell you, friend, you are found out to be a prideful man. If if you're an anxious person, your heart reveals your pride. Instead of being anxious, verse 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him. Take those anxieties that you wrestle with and throw them on Christ. The word cast is only used here in one other other place in the New Testament. It's used in Luke 19 at the triumphal entry when the disciples took the coats and threw them onto the donkey. Let the donkey deal with these coats. I'm not going to deal with them. Let God deal with our problems. Throw them onto him. Psalm 55, verse 22 says, Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. So often, I think that we do this. I think we say, God, I need help, and we cast our cares. We throw our cares on his back, and we say, please, we pray, we plead, help. And then we wait, and since it's not the proper time yet, deliverance doesn't come. And so we say, you know what, let me take that back. I'll I'll deal with it. Good job. I'll, I'll figure this out. Thanks. We tried. It's okay. You've got other things to deal with. You're running the world. I'll deal with this one. But Peter tells us the true extent of our humility would, would be casting our cares on God, casting our anxieties on Him, and saying, I trust. I trust. We throw our anxieties onto Christ through our prayers. And notice Peter doesn't tell us, just do it. Just do it. He says, do it because God cares for you. He knows every tear you cry. He holds every tear that you cry in a bottle. And he weeps along with you. He cares for you. One commentator says, all that creates anxiety for us, whether momentous or trivial, is a matter of concern to him. You cannot come before God and say, okay, this is, this is too small. You, you probably don't really even care about this. You don't have time to deal with this. No, it's a matter of concern to our God. So if you want a simple test of your humility before God, ask yourself this simple question. What do I cast on God in prayer, and what do I decide I can handle myself? Because prayerlessness is the believer's declaration of independence from God. So Peter says, humble yourself. Hand over your worries to God. Give him your cares. Let him deal with them. He loves you. And he's working for your good. So we've seen the promise of humility. God gives grace. God exalts. God upholds and supports those who are humble. And then we've seen Peter's practical pursuit. If we were to ask Peter this morning, how do I pursue humility? Because I know God gives grace to the humble. How do I pursue humility? He would say, submit to the human authorities that are in your life. Submit joyfully and gladly. Do that willingly every day. Become a slave of everyone. Serve everyone. Regard others as more important than yourself. And embrace God's sovereignty in your circumstances. His providence in your life, casting your cares on him. Now, if you're like me, you come to the end of that and you go, well, thanks, I have not been encouraged because, once again, that's an impossible standard to meet. 
I can't get there at all. So you're telling me I'm stuck to live inside of the world of being a prideful person. I can never practically pursue humility because I can't walk down that road. I struggle to submit. I struggle to serve other people. And I think I can do a pretty good job of fixing my own problems in my life. Brothers and sisters, this is an impossible standard for us. That's why it makes me thankful for Jesus. Just think about Jesus. He submitted to his father, and he submitted to the authorities in his life. Remember his peace and calm before Pilate? You couldn't do anything that you're going to do if it wasn't for God's authority being given to you. Not frustrated at all, joyfully, gladly submitting. He became a slave of everyone. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a, a ransom for many. And of course, Jesus embraced God's providence in his circumstance. Yes, you can wrestle with it. God, is there any other way for us to save humanity? If there's any other way, take this cup from me. And what does the Father say? The Father says, nothing. There is no other way. And that's why Jesus says, not my will, yours be done. Rolling his anxieties up onto what could cause anxieties in his heart, up onto the Lord, up onto Yahweh, and saying, I trust you. Not my will, but yours be done. So what do we do? We come to Jesus and we say, help, I have nothing to offer. Even when I want to pursue humility, I see I can't do that on my own. I need grace, help. And then we run to the cross. We can't be arrogant, D.A. Carson says, when you stand beside the cross. John Stott says, far from offering us flattery, the cross undermines our self-righteousness and we can only stand before it with a bowed head and a broken spirit. What's going to create that broken spirit in us? It's going to be running to the cross and seeing that Jesus suffered because of me, because of my sin. And he in his grace became my perfect record of righteousness. He did everything we're talking about this morning perfectly. He lived it out perfectly such that by faith alone, through the grace that he has given, we can cry out to him and say, I can't live this out. I have a terrible record of being a prideful jerk. What can you do with this? And he would say, number one, I will cleanse that record. I will take that record and throw it as far as from the east as from the west. I'll destroy it to the bottom of the ocean floor. It's gone. Canceled. No more sin. Gone. Praise the one who paid my debt. And then I'll give you my perfect record of righteousness. Jesus lived perfectly obedient to the Father, dying in our place, dying as if he had lived our sinful lives, so that the Father could see us as if we had lived the perfection of Jesus. Not because of anything we've done. We don't have to be good enough. In fact, those of us who would say, Oh, I'll try to be good enough for God so that he'll love me. We undo grace. It's impossible to be saved if we think that. So we come and we plead the blood of Christ. John Stott says it this way, and we'll end here. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It's your sin that I'm bearing. It's your curse that I'm suffering. It's your debt that I'm paying. It's your death that I'm dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross.
All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Father, we want to shrink to our true size this morning as we stare at the cross, as we sing of the cross. We've already sung of the cross. We've talked about the cross. And now we want to respond. You took our curse on the cross. You bore our blame. You did away with our sin. And now you bid us to come and to die. To take our own cross. To die daily to our own will. Submit to you and to follow you in what you would tell us to do. So, Father, we want to respond. We want to respond in hope that the Holy Spirit promises that change will take place as we submit ourselves to the Word. So, God, change our hearts even now. Bring us back to a place of our true size before you. Shrink us down. Make us feel utterly insignificant. And then remind us that because God has called us by name, He, through His grace, has given us great significance, calling us sons and daughters. May we follow you gladly, joyfully, forsaking everything else and pursuing you, our greatest treasure. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.